Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we talk about all sorts of exciting things, including what our pets are like watching on TV (laughs) and why professional film directors are stupid. Um, I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks. With me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. How are you this this fine day, Karen? I'm great. I really am. I'm in day two of a four-day weekend. Must be nice. It is. Must be nice. I am so bad at taking like the like when people who who have regular nine to five jobs get vacations. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's like I could have a holiday weekend, but I didn't plan it like that. (laughs) And I keep on reminding myself to plan it like that. And then I forget. And so Mm -hmm. I I wind up working on President's Day, which really I should be observing presidents at that time. Um, Some of the presidents, some of the presidents, some of of the good, the, the decent ones. (laughs) <laughs> the, the ones that we're okay with yeah uh well we have a we have a fun and interesting episode today i'm really excited because we're going to talk talk about screwball comedies which is one of my favorite genres um and and it's just so much fun and i think the three films that we're going to discuss are just a lot of fun and different enough that i think there's a lot to be said about all of them um but before we get into that we had a few things that we wanted to to chat about really quickly before we start on our main topic and i'm just going to start right at the top because um <laughs> that's what i feel like doing so yesterday on twitter which is still a thing even though elon musk is working really hard really really hard at driving every human being off of twitter <laughs> imagine hating a thing so much that you spend 44 44- billion dollars just to destroy it it's it's remarkable like how how and it's by increments too you know i mean i think when this all started we were like one of one of these days we're just going to wake up and twitter's not going to be there and i'm i still think that that's going to happen to be honest but it's been moving very slowly we're just like oh every single decision you're making is the worst possible decision amazing it's amazing how good at this you are (laughs) it's incredible I've never seen anything like this. But but Twitter still exists. We are still on Twitter. And and it does enable us to have access to really stupid opinions from <laughs> famous people, which <laughs> I I enjoy. So it's not not just us, you know, normal, everyday, uh, stupid people. The the famous people are also stupid as well. Um, so this this one comes to us courtesy of, of Phil Lord, who is best known for things like the Lego movie. He's and, one half of Lord and Miller. Yeah. And uh, was uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Is that right? Yeah, they produced Into the Spider-Verse. They've actually become pretty, um, pretty good producers. They were fired from the solo movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so 
Lord is not one of those people that I particularly pay attention to a great deal, but this one really got me. And it got you too, apparently, because you're like, (laughs) we need to talk about how stupid Phil Lord is. So some of this, I think, is the result of reading a headline or or a tweet without actually reading the the content of the article it's referencing. The New Yorker published a a pretty long and in-depth discussion um, with the director of RRR, uh, SS Rajamuli, who um, is, you know, has has suddenly gained a lot of uh, a lot of interest in particularly in the West because of RRR and because of how, um, you know, how much momentum it had and how popular it became here. Uh, Oscar nominated film. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and so within this interview, the New Yorker's tweet, I think, is a bit misleading to begin yes. with. I think that's honestly where the problem started. Yeah. So the problem started and what the New Yorker tweeted was the RRR director, S.S. Rajamuli, discusses atheism, what makes a good action sequence and some of his creative influences, including Mel Gibson and Ayn Rand. This this is where so almost immediately, like, I mean, that raised concerns for me. I was just like, who in the what now? His influences Mm -hmm. are Mel Gibson and and Ayn Rand. Uh, Okay, I have a problem with that. But if you actually read what he says, I'm not necessarily defending them as influences. But what he's talking about specifically is he specifically talks about Mel Gibson's Braveheart um, as a major influence on RRR and on, on his, his form of storytelling. Um, And when he talks about Ayn Rand, sorry to jump in, when he talks about Ayn Rand, it's about the way characters are developed and the way that they believe, like, it's not about, it's not, he's not critiquing the characters or, or praising them. It's more in the way that they are written, where they really believe in what they are fighting for. Yeah, and that's pretty Which is obvious. Very much at the heart of his story. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very obvious, like what he's actually talking about. Now, are these necessarily the best people to be referencing? No, and I think that it does raise some it does raise some concerns. But Phil Lord's response was so his influences are three generations of right wing nationalists. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, and of course, this this immediately prompted a whole bunch of people to come out, and some people defending um, defending the article, some people. Uh, you know, saying all kinds of wrong and incorrect things. But I think the point here is that this doesn't actually address the content of what Rajamuli was talking about. And as as several people mentioned, like Braveheart is an influence, like no matter what your perspective is on Mel Gibson as a person, the film Braveheart is a major element in a lot of filmmaking like it's it won the academy award it was an incredibly popular film it's a very important film in a lot of ways you don't have to like the film necessarily but i do think that we need to talk about the fact that it is a very important film um and so some of this is just like lord taking this out of context and making it seem like you know rajmali is essentially saying that he agrees politically with ayn rand and mel gibson which he is not saying I don't know what his politics are. Uh, I I do think that there are there are definitely things in RR that have been discussed as having issues both with nationalism, with depictions of the caste system, um, all kinds of things. At the same time, I do think that as white Westerners, it is not our place to comment on those. I don't. I personally, and I doubt whether Phil Lord does. I do not personally know. Agree enough about the politics of India and the politics underlying RRR in order to make 
a a generalized you know response to it so i would much rather listen to south asian critics who have something to say about this to critics within india and there have been a lot of different responses so i'm not going to say that like one way or the other um this is a right-wing film or a correct film or anything like that i do think it's interesting um and i don't want to keep on going on this but uh i do think it's interesting how badly a lot of particularly white people in the West really want to make this film problematic, especially given that the main villain, one, no matter how you look at the film, no matter what you say about Indian politics, the main villain in RRR is white British colonialists. That is that that's the big bad, right? There is, and it's it's deeply and intensely critical of British colonialism. And the fact that so many white people in the West are like, oh, well, let's find, let's, you know, decide that this guy is actually a right wing nut job or something like that. It's like, I I think that we're stepping into a space that we don't belong in. And it also is a really bad look. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's ultimately, there, there were two things that particularly troubled me with the fact that Phil Lord stepped in and tweeted this because one was I'm, I was very concerned with the the way that not just him it, it, like he's he, he's the one that I ended up happening to see this tweet from but but yeah there's just this weird tendency and very problematic and disturbing tendency for um white westerners to to interject or to comment or to declare problematic things they don't understand like what you're talking about but also just seeing white filmmakers tearing down uh filmmakers of any other race or ethnicity or background and and doing so under the guise of like oh see this person has you know problematic political views or their influences are all wrong or whatever the case may be it's just this this it's really disturbing to watch the way instead of instead of like Phil Lord and Chris Miller, they, uh, I mean, they've, they've done a lot here in the United States. They're very popular, um, you know, with not just with what they've directed, but with what they've produced. And, and honestly, I find their movies really entertaining. They're in a position to boost up people who need more support, people who don't look like them, um they're not great with women but they you know they have actually done a pretty good job of trying to seek out um mm-hmm. filmmakers of color here in the United States but seeing this kind of reaction to something without having or or at least without sharing the full context of it and trying to um trying to basically distill what was said down to a soundbite is really a problem and my and that you know the other part of my issue with this is the fact that we already have such a problem with media literacy in this country probably worldwide but i don't know i can't speak for everywhere else in the world um but we have such a problem with media literacy and with people just not bothering to find out the full context of what anybody is saying and so for him to take that already unfair tweet that the new yorker did with sharing this piece in the first place and then 
you know, basically boiling it down even more to make it sound like Rajamuli is saying something he didn't even say. So many people are going to jump on that. They're going to believe what Phil Lord says. They're not even going to bother to read the original tweet. And even if they do, they're pro- most people, not most, but a lot of people aren't going to even bother to click on that link and read mm-hmm. the article. And it's it's a problematic uh, trend and it's yeah. got it's getting worse and worse all the time. But it's especially concerning to see people whose entire career is in media yeah perpetuating that yeah i i absolutely agree with you um and and again i i mean when i initially saw that tweet i was like oh that's concerning and it was also the new yorker right so and the new yorker to me is like oh the new yorker is fairly trustworthy in a lot of ways so i was like well you know what i'm gonna look at the article I'm going to ignore the two. I'm going to actually look at the article. And I, and I read through the interview and he says a lot of things throughout that interview. And, but exactly what I said. So it's just like, oh, so he's not actually, he's not saying one way or the other, you know, like I support Mel Gibson's political perspective. Right. Right. He's saying Braveheart was an influence. Yeah. He says, he cites Braveheart and he mm. does cite Apocalypto, but then he has some very not flattering things to say about the passion of the Christ, you know? Yeah. And what, and I, I think it's interesting because Mel Gibson also comes up in context because of a scene in RRR where that is, is very, at least to Western eyes, is very Christ-like um, and might possibly be referencing the passion of the Christ. And it's yeah. interesting that what he says, just like, no, I, that's, that's not what I was, was going for. I was actually, you know, Braveheart was more of an influence and that's an interesting conversation to have. And you're also, you know, again, when you talk about Braveheart specifically, leaving aside Mel Gibson and, and what we know about him, um, Braveheart is a very anti-colonial, anti-British film. Extremely. And (laughs) that's the whole point of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I think that there and there, there is, and you know, I always sometimes, sometimes I go back to the the South Park episodes. But there's a South Park episode where someone says, like, you know, say what you want to about Mel Gibson, but the man knows story structure, and he does. Like, you, I have to <laughs> yep. say, I am appalled by Mel Gibson in pretty much every possible way. He does understand story structure, <laughs> and that it's is true. communicated in his films. Um, yep. But yeah, I, I to go back to kind of the broader issue, this. And it's something that I've been seeing, not seeing more of, but maybe it's just been striking me in a in a heavier way, this complete lack of nuance and this complete lack of context. So on every side, right? And so, and, and in fact, very often, I'm a very left-wing person. The um, The lack of nuance and the lack of desiring nuance, even in some of the conversations that get going on social media and even within journalism and with, I don't think it's just social media, even though social media is is fueling it, the total lack of nuance of like cultural context, political context, historical context, um, when certain things should be acceptable, when they shouldn't be, all of these different things is getting is getting lost so quickly, especially when we're de- when we're dealing with media. And actually, it's something that I think that we're probably going to talk about a little bit because there's been this consistent sex scene discourse, the issue of sex scenes, um, which we which we talked about at length uh, on another episode. But this this discourse keeps on coming back, and that lack of nuance from everybody, from people who should know better. Mm-hmm. Right. And someone like Phil Lord, you are like, you should know better. You should know better than to take this out of context. 
yeah. and and tweet it out to a whole bunch of people who are, as as you point out, Karen, who are going, many of whom are going to take that as fact right. and aren't going to read the article, aren't going to actually look at it and are being painted. Then if you argue against it, they're just like, oh, well, you're just okay with venerating Mel Gibson. It's just like, that's not what anyone's saying. Exactly. Um, so yeah, the nuance gets lost really, really quickly. And it's a disturbing when that happens, especially from an artist. Uh, so any, any other thoughts about that before we move on? No, no. I think well, that's enough. <laughs> well, let's move on to something else that has majorly lacked nuance. Mm-hmm. Uh, really briefly, so a, a couple of... Uh, couple weeks ago, I guess, um, we talked about Andre Riseborough and the whole Oscar um, Oscar nomination issue and this issue of kind of black women being shut out while, you know, people like Andre Riseborough are getting nominated for very small films. Riseborough herself uh, has responded to it. And Karen, you, you were the one that shared this article, so I'm going to let you talk about it for a little bit. Um, I didn't get a chance to read the entire article, but I, I did go through some of the things that she said about the Oscars. So what was your takeaway from what Riceboro was saying? So uh, it's interesting. So she sat down with The Hollywood Reporter, and apparently she originally sat down with this person just a couple of days after the nominations were announced. But but like some kind, it was a really short time period. So I'm not really clear on when this took place because it was before the backlash started and before the the Academy said that they were stepping in. Um, and investigating it and so she ended up like adding some additional comments for this reporter later um so but it's like this must have happened like within a day or two of the nominations coming out because that all just went crazy really fast um but anyway so what she she starts off just like most of it because of the fact that this happened just kind of basking in the glow of oh my gosh i just got an oscar nomination um so a lot of this article, which we will also link in the show notes, is her talking about how this really was a little movie that that could. You know, it, it had very small budget. It took 19 days to film. It was released months ago and basically never went anywhere until all of a sudden Helen Hunt was kind of patient zero on this. She was the one who saw it and started telling people about it. And then other, other you know, um, other of her colleagues what's the word contemporaries started uh started also finally watching it and sharing it too and so it really did kind of take this or at least for her it took this very organic delayed but uh, but organic journey and and it just hit at the right time which this is the thing about the oscars that a lot of people like to forget about is that so much of of what happens is all about timing and for her, that's what this was. So um, so she's talking a lot about just how like this was just such an incredible thing to happen. But then, of course, the controversy controversy sparks up. And so then the the kind of the end of the interview goes into her talking about how this is a conversation that has to happen. And she says it's deeply impacted me, which um of course, there are a lot of reasons why, but um, but I, I think it's just interesting. It's good to see that she's speaking out. It's really unfortunate that what happened um, has kind of taken away her opportunity to get to celebrate this. And the people around her 
are also um are also you know taking kind of there's kind of factions there's still people that are really mad at her as if she did this and and she very much did not you know um but uh she um there was a specific quote i was looking for and now i can't find it and i didn't mark it down but um basically she she had some things to say about the fact that like it's she she took the stance of it's good that the academy is asking questions it's good that they're looking at this um not because she needed to be investigated or anything like that but because it's like she very much wants everyone to have the same opportunities she and she knows what that's like coming from a film that was so small and mm-hmm. that no one had heard of three months ago you know and so it's like she she really does want a level playing field for everybody um and then let's see i still can't find that quote sorry i'm scrolling through i'm looking for it but was it was it this it not only makes sense that this conversation would be sparked but it is necessary yeah film industry is abhorrently unequal in terms of opportunity i'm mindful not to speak for the experience of other people because they are better placed to speak and i want to listen that's the one thank you was that the one yeah it's it's nearing it's nearing the end of the article um Mm -hmm. it's almost like the the last the last few paragraphs um yeah, I, I mean, I think that this was an interesting kind of interesting article. And I do, I do think a lot of people have been saying, and, and we said when we talked about this earlier, that Riceboro herself has been, is being badly treated. She's kind of yeah. gotten caught up in, a, in something that she probably didn't really intend and was, and has now become this, this much more fraught political landscape that it doesn't need to be. Because ultimately, again, and, I, and we said this when we talked about it, Andrea Riceboro did not take an Oscar nomination away from black women. The Academy took Oscar nominations away from black women. Um, and the I, acting branch of the Academy to be even more specific. Yeah. And, and I, I do think that the reason why Riceboro in particular is getting the kind of scrutiny that she was versus, um, you know, Ana de Armas, who, <laughs> who also got an, a nomination and um, you know, and I think the, a, a very controversial nomination is in terms of the actual film that she is being nominated for. Um, but the fact that it's, it's focused so much on rice I think is because it was this small film that so few people had seen and that did get this kind of groundswell of support from very influential um, actors. Right. And and so it's it's got everything has gotten so muddled. So I do think that it's good that she's actually coming out and saying like you know I, that this is this has had a major impact on me, and I want to listen to and and not try to speak for other people, right? And she's being very sort of diplomatic and very uh, clear about that. But it's again we we really need to know and we need to get away from the fact that we want this to be that there is this continuous. Um, view that this has got to be a cat fight the best actress nominations have become more and more about like some kind of artificial competition between these women when the women themselves are very much not saying that yeah um and and saying like oh it's this competition between these women and it's like andre riceborough took this this nomination away from from a black woman and everything and meanwhile and and you know the article even quotes um uh gina gina prince bythewood right and 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 she 
points out there is no groundswell from privileged people with enormous capital to get behind black women. There never has been. And she's right. But that should not be directed specifically at Andrea Riceborough. And it isn't. It should be directed at the fact that there needs to be equal opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, there needs to be equal opportunity in nominations. There need, You know, Michelle Yao says that it took her 40 years to get nominated. Just like, what the fuck is that? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, yeah. like that should not be true. And it, that is not the problem of Kate Blanchett. That is not the problem of Andrea Riceboro. That is the problem of the entire academy. Mm-hmm. It isn't an individual who or, or a group of individuals even who is keeping black women out. It is an entire system. And it's the system that really needs to be addressed. So turning this into a cat fight, basically, is unfair. It's sexist. And it's um, and it's it's obfuscating the real problem. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and we see this all the time, like a couple of years ago when Anthony Hopkins ended up winning Best Actor over Chadwick Boseman, who would have received it posthumously. And there are a lot of complicated reasons why that happened. But a lot of people wanted to be upset at Anthony Hopkins, who never campaigned that year. He doesn't campaign for Oscars anymore. And he really didn't. He kind of did a little bit for the two popes the year before, but that was more about the movie itself and not about him, you know, and it's he just but everyone wanted to blame him for something that a whole bunch of voters did instead, you know, and we just we see this happen year after year. And in particular, in the case of the best actors race this year, um, I think that, you know, when we. I think it doesn't help that people like Ryan Murphy like to make movies called or TV shows called feud and then uh, stir up things that happened 50 years ago. And then they see that and go, well, this is just, you know, this is what happens. This is what it is. This is what it's like. And it's, I have never seen a best actress race that was as friendly and loving and as champion each other as this year's race. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't usually see a lot of vitriol or anything like that, but I mean, these women, they would be thrilled. Like none of them care. Well, I mean, probably they all care, but like they are all so thrilled for each other that they're just having a good time being there and being, being there together. And, and to, to try to project this weird fighting um, on them is so unfair to them. And so ahistorical. Yeah. Uh, it, well, it it is that whole idea of the like, like I say, the cat fight. The like, ooh, these yeah. women hate each other. Ooh, they secretly despise one another, and and that that has been promoted in Hollywood for a very long time because it's dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, it you know, and I remember a couple of years ago, even there's this whole thing, just like, oh, I bet Lady Gaga is so mad about this. She's just stomping around her mansion, and just like you know, I, no, I don't think that she is. I don't, she might be disappointed <laughs> that she didn't get nominated as you know, anyone might be, but I don't think that she's angry at Kristen Stewart over this. No. And there are hundreds of, of performances that are eligible every year and only five get in. That's it. So getting upset at not being one of the five, um, you know, so, so there's different for Viola and Danielle, but yeah, well, and and I think, and that's the important conversation to have. And I'm yeah. really glad that that conversation continues to kind of bubble up, that it, it isn't being completely subsumed by this, 
you know, this artificial construction of this fight going on between individuals, that it's actually actually a lot of people and, and we quoted some articles and, you know, a lot of people are actually saying saying what the truth is, which is that there is a problem within Hollywood. Yeah. Um, well, and one other thing that that Riseboro says in this article is um, awards campaigning is as acerbically exclusive as it has always been. I do not yet know which measures will best encourage meritocracy. I've been working toward discovering them and will continue to. So that's, I mean, that right there is big part of the problem is we talk about best actress, best director, best picture, which right there, how do you have best when it comes to art? You know, there's lots of things that are good for lots of different reasons, Mm -hmm. but even there it's so often the, the people that win, it's not necessarily about the best. It's it's so much more often like the most popular or who peaked at the right time or whatever. And so that's her point too, is like, I don't know how to how to encourage meritocracy, you know? Like that's that's really it's supposed to be about merit, and so often it isn't. And looking for ways to make that better or more um uh pronounced, I guess, is is really the ultimate goal. Yeah. Absolutely. So we will link that the the whole article, and it's it's a it's an entire interview. It isn't, and it talks about Riceboro's career and everything. So it isn't just focused on this, but it's a, yeah, I think it's a really interesting article and a really important one. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um. So let's let's move on to what our main topic is, uh, screwball comedies. Yes. So I kind of want to start out with saying, first of all, what is what is the screwball comedy? Um, I, I would caution people not to 100% take the Wikipedia article as fact on this one. <laughs> no. <clears throat> um, because there's a lot of disagreement if this is a genre, if this is a, a subgenre, what this actually means. And as with most genre discussions, um, you talk about like one or two films that fit the definition, as it were, and then a whole bunch of films that don't at all. Um, but still kind of fall into the, under the same tone. So it's almost a, a tone and a, um, a plot of, of comedy, but it's very often treated as a, um, as a subgenre of romantic comedy, but particularly uh, from about the, the mid to late thirties into the early to mid forties. Uh, so this is very importantly, most screwball comedies or, one, or things that we label screwball comedies are come after right at the beginning of or just after the really heavy enforcement of the the Hayes Code, um, which we have talked about numerous times. If you want to know what the production code is, you know, go go and read it. You can you can read versions of it. Um, but one of the things that the Hayes Code did, as we've discussed, is that it really limited the way, first of all, what topics could be represented, but also what could the way that men and women could actually interact with each other on screen and the way that you could portray romance. And so there, because there were so many limitations, there were a lot of films that tried to kind of get around some of the limitations of, uh, of the production code and figure out, okay, how do we show people falling in love? How do we show people wanting to have sex with each other without actually showing sex without actually, you know, talking about people going to bed together um, or showing people going to bed together, things like that. And one of the solutions was the screwball comedy, which typically features a man and a woman very often who are flipping roles 
um, where the woman is the, the one who is pursuing the man. She's often the one with more money, more power. Uh, and they have, as the film progresses, a much more equitable relationship than you would often see in more traditional romances, romantic dramas, or romantic comedies, where they're switching gender roles. They are um, even at times occupying similar gender roles. And a lot of their romance is done through a combination of what is usually referred to as play. So pretending to be different people, um, slapstick comedy, things like that, and innuendo and repartee. So actually just talking. And in fact, a lot of people talk about the, the screwball comedy as, you know, replacing um, sex with dialogue. And that's where the romance gets built. So very often, one of the things I, I pointed out uh, several weeks ago about the screwball comedy is that there's very often not a kiss. Or if there mm -hmm. is a kiss, there there's like one, maybe at the end of the film, um, that a lot of it really is about what is being implied and what is being said by the characters, less about uh, what is actually physically happening between them. And that's one of the most interesting, I think, elements of the screwball comedy. But so for today, we just want to talk about a few of these. And I think it's great to start with what is very often labeled as the first screwball comedy. Uh, it Happened One Night, a comedy from 1934, um, directed and co-produced by Frank Capra and starring Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. Uh, Karen, I'm going to let you start on this one. Um, what are your thoughts about It Happened One Night? This is kind of considered to be the quintessential screwball comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it is, it's funny. It's fun. It's, um, I mean, it's Clark Gable and Claudette Col Colbert. Like there's so much to like about this movie. It's funny though, too, because I was just rewatching it. Um, this, uh, not this morning, yesterday, I don't know, like days are all blending together, uh, yesterday. And I was just thinking like, Oh, I'm so glad I was born when I was <laughs> because, like yeah. Clark Gable, obviously he's like the the you know romantic lead in this movie, but also and you know he's very debonair, very charming, all that. But the things that he says and the way that he talks to her, I'm just like, screw you, dude, go away. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely elements of that. I think that nearing the end of the film, he says something like, you know, <laughs> the the sh that she should be married to a guy that's going to take a swing at her, you know, once a yeah. day, whether she's she has a conquer or not. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> and and you go, but I, one of the interesting things about this film, and I think why it's labeled the first screwball comedy, is that first of all, it's a road movie, right? It's yeah. the two of them. She is a heiress on the run. Um, she wants to get married, but well, she is married. To, oh, she, yeah, she's she eloped. Is yeah, mm -hmm. and and her father is basically like trying to imprison her, um, and, <laughs> and force her to get an annulment. Yeah, and so she takes off on the road. He is a newspaper man, and they meet basically on a bus. Yeah. Um, and and romance ensues, and a lot of it is also about like him trying to get a story, her trying to conceal her identity. Um, but so she's much also completely incapable of surviving in the wild yeah. because she is a you know poor little rich girl type of situation. Yeah. So part part of the joke, and this this is one of the the screwball comedy tropes, is the dizzy dame, right? The the yeah. screwball heiress who is really rich and really powerful in a lot of ways, but is also completely incapable of, of existing in the world. One of the most interesting things about um, this film, I think, 
is is the way that it deals with depression era America because a lot of a lot of this is in in looking at you know her this this woman who comes from extreme wealth interacting with everyday Americans like there there is a there's a section where like a, a woman passes out on the bus because they haven't she hasn't eaten for a day mm-hmm. um and 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 the immediate reaction of the Colbert character is I'm going to give away our money and the Gable character is like we now have no money right with the there is no money and she's like what do you mean we don't have any money and she's like no you you just gave it away you right. just gave away our money and so so much of this film really does deal directly in a, in a way that a lot of screwball comedies didn't, um, especially later ones, directly with the impact of the depression on regular everyday Americans and the distance between um, the rich and the poor. Because mm-hmm. she just doesn't understand, she doesn't understand the value of money. She doesn't understand the value of a dime right. uh, when the film starts. And as the film progresses, she learns that. So, so much of this film is about them educating each other uh, and yeah. her kind of showing herself to be a lot more than just the spoiled heiress and, and him showing her the real America. Yeah. Well, and, and understanding the era that this takes place in and was filmed in is really important because then you understand people aren't, you know, lacking in empathy and not willing to help because they're jerks. It's because they can't like, these are normal people. So when she's kind of stuck or when they need a hotel room and they don't have any money for one and they have to lie and they get chased out in the middle of the night, it's not because this motel owner just sucks. It's because like they can't have a, a they can't be given out free rooms, you know, they, they don't have, they can't afford that, you know? So it's, it's that kind of thing too. And it's important to understand um, context matters. What? Um, yeah. So. Yeah. And, and what I think the comedy element in all of this is also the way that the two of them learn from each other. Yeah. And the way that and 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 also show each other what they really are. So, you know, you have the very famous scene where Col- Colbert uh, hit where they hitchhike and um, <laughs> Gable cannot get a ride to save his life. You know, he's <laughs> he's not as worldly wise as he pretends to be a lot of the time. And and she's just like, well, you know, how about how about I give it a shot? And she, you know, pulls up her skirt and shows her leg and immediately a car pulls over. <laughs> um, so so there is that. And he's mad about it. Right. For for a good bit of the film. Um, but so there there is that back and forth where she she turns out to be more as a woman, she turns out to be more aware of the world around her than he thinks. And as like an actual, you know, person who who exists outside of a very privileged bubble, he shows her a lot more of the world than she ever really understood or imagined. So mm-hmm. there's that kind of equitable exchange that goes on between the two of them, you know, and notwithstanding some of the more sexist elements, um, particularly uh, later on in the film, like you said, the <laughs> needing a husband to beat you and things like that, right. which I have a very, I have very skeptical about his ability to actually hit her and for her not to hit him back in this uh-huh. film. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it seems more, there is a lot of posturing going on, particularly with the Gable character. And I think that you got, we have to note that. <laughs> but it's the fact that he can say that and not be questioned. That's the thing. Yeah, like, and her father's the men like, around him are like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, her <laughs> father's like, means. absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you definitely yeah. need to take a swing at my daughter. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. 
Uh, I one of the elements that I think is really interesting in this film um, that that runs throughout the the entirety of screwball comedies is this this issue of sex, right? Mm-hmm. And 1934, so this is the code is being more strictly enforced, but there's still a little bit of flexibility within it. Um, it's not as kind of stringent as it would get in the later 30s and into the 40s. Uh, but we've got a number of scenes where the two of them have to share a room. Uh, yeah, because and... this didn't happen one night. This happened over several nights. <laughs> Despite just saying. Despite the title. <laughs> um, so we've got the scene where they have to share a room and they're and at first they're very like she is very embarrassed. And uh and there's a very famous scene of Clark Gable getting undressed and showing her how a man undresses. Um, which by the way, the the Clark Gable not wearing an undershirt, so taking off his shirt and not having an undershirt on underneath, basically inspired a whole generation of men to stop wearing undershirts. <laughs> um, this this was this was famous, just like, oh, Clark Gable doesn't wear an undershirt. So uh, <laughs> but but this this whole thing where there's a lot of hinting at the potential of them sleeping together, of them having sex, but the film can't obviously cannot go that far. Um, there's this consistent joke about the walls of Jericho, right? So they put up a blanket in the middle of the room and she sleeps on one's in a bed on one side and he sleeps in a bed on the other. And there's a moment where they're talking, um, fairly late in the film where they're talking and it's quite obvious that both of them are in love with each other. Um, but she crosses the wall. She goes across, she goes around to him. And it's interesting, the sexual politics, I think that are represented in this film because you have that that moment of the woman effectively pursuing the man like she is the one who essentially declares that she wants to be in a relationship with him uh and that she wants to be a part of the life that he is imagining for himself and that he is imagining himself leading he's not the kind of instigator of their romantic relationship she is and that's something that runs through a lot of screwball comedy is this the the woman wanting the man and deciding that she is going to be with him and then pursuing him until she gets him. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But I I think that that's, I think it's interesting when you, when, you know, and particularly right now when we're having all these, this, this talk about sex scenes and the issue of sex scenes and should you show sex scenes? Mm -hmm. One of the things this group of comedy relies on is uh, comedy is it, but it's chemistry. It's the relationship between the leads um it's the it's the way that they portray desire and a lot of what convinces the colbert character in this film that she wants to be with gable is you know the fact that she has fun with him yeah they laugh they play they pretend to be married they um they they make jokes with each other they rib each other they argue they yell all of those things there is an intensity to their relationship and 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 she's enjoying it she's enjoying the fact she's enjoyed the fact that he's not letting her get his her own way all the time mm-hmm. um and that he's yeah. in fact pointing out a lot of the ways in which she's overprivileged and um is behaving in a silly way she's he's not giving her the kind of the space that she usually gets from men um right. he's in fact yeah. saying like you're too spoiled for me <laughs> like you think too much <laughs> and she kind of has to prove that she's not and I think that's one of the big, like, we obviously we never see much of her interaction with her, um, her husband, uh, King Wesley, but, um, so we don't really know how he 
how he treats her or or any of that but i think that she's definitely very drawn to the fact that for so much of the film like even when he clearly has started to fall for her like he's not just you know all sweet and trying to like kiss her butt like probably everyone around her does you know he's not treating her with kid gloves he's not he's not um like he he'll tell her you're being a brat you're being dumb and she's just like okay and she respects that so it's um yeah yeah um well i think that there, there's nearing the end of the film there's a really good scene it's after uh, gable has gone to see her father and he's leaving and he happens upon her they're they like having a big party and it's like Clara Colbert in this gorgeous gown right surrounded by men mm-hmm. and she's practically standing on a pedestal and he looks at her and he says oh yeah now you look natural right so he's very <laughs> mad at her yeah. uh at, at that moment but one of the things that is is happening in that moment is 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 the sense that like she's been put up on a pedestal men have always been around her and they've wanted her and and i think that the other element there's that it's like why do they want her do they want her for her beauty do they want her for her money or do they want her for herself and he's definitely represented as being probably one of the first probably one of the only men other than her father who loves her for who she is mm-hmm. um yeah. and that that's and he shows that in fact he's he's repelled by her money in a lot of ways because he's like, you're too spoiled for me. You're not going to be able to do the things that I want to do because you know, you're just this rich, this rich woman. Um, And, and so his reaction to her is not, I want your money and I'm going to pursue you until I get it. He's like, no, I don't, I don't want your money. I, in fact, I, I reject your money. (laughs) Which also is how her father kind of respects him too, Mm -hmm. because he hates the guy that she had run off with and and it's not that he necessarily is just like oh sure you you should marry my daughter instead but the way that that when when um peter comes and says yeah i'm here for the money and he's thinking the ten thousand dollar reward for bringing his daughter back and he's like no here's what you need to reimburse me for this is how much this adventure cost me and Mm -hmm. that he refused the reward money like that's not what he was about there was something that her father really respected in that and and that's ultimately like nearing the very end that's what he says to her he's just like he didn't come here for the money like he Mm -hmm. came here for for what he spent on you (laughs) yeah um and that and that was it and that's what finally kind of breaks her where she realizes that he loves her um not what she can give him not the way that she looks even not the not all of the other trappings that all these other men have kind of set her up for but because she is the person that he wants um and and that becomes very i think meaningful in in terms of the rest of the screwball comedy genre because a lot of this is about people finding um men and it's it's particularly men and women obviously given the era um that it is about them, the, the leads finding each other and finding equal partners who care about them for who they are, not for anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's move to a, another screwball comedy. This is much later. So this is six years later. There are a lot of, uh, <laughs> of different different comedies. And um, Gable did a few, uh, Colbert did a few. 
uh, Cary Grant, Gene Harlow, uh, Roz Russell. And this particular film is one of my personal favorites <laughs> for a lot of different reasons, not least because it is next to impossible to catch every single line of dialogue because it's so quick. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about His Girl Friday. This is a 1940 uh, screwball comedy directed by Howard Hawks, who did a number of screwball comedies um, in the late 30s and 40s, and starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell as um, Hilde Johnson, uh, played by Ros <laughs> Russell, and Walter Burns, who's her, her managing editor. Uh, and Hildy Johnson is a former newspaper reporter who has decided to go see her ex-husband, Walter, one more time to tell her she's going to get married. And of course, he can't have that. And so the entire <laughs> film is basically Walter trying to stop her from getting married without really telling her that he's stopping her from getting married. Right. Um, I think one of the great things about this film is that it's based on the front page uh, which was both a film that was made in, I think, like 19, early, early 30s um, and is uh, a, and was also a 1928 play written by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur. And the switch that has happened in His Girl Friday is that the front page was about two men. Uh, His Girl Friday is it's turned into a screwball comedy and you have Roz Russell playing base, what is basically a male role but obviously with a number of, of changes. Um, so one of the strengths of this, I think, is that the this is a film where it is quite obvious that Hildy and Walter are matched at an intellectual, at a comedic, and at a dialogue level. <laughs> um, and in fact, and this is very much based on both the fact that you've cast Cary Grant and Roz Russell, who are able to just rattle off some of this patter in an overlapping dialogue too, in a way that is truly shocking. And then meanwhile, you've got Ralph Bellamy, who is slow and laconic and is, is very much at odds with the way that everybody else around him talks. Um, and you do kind of ask like, why, why does this woman want to marry Ralph Bellamy? <laughs> like, honestly. Yep. Um, but it's because he's offering kind of all of the trappings of normal 1940s domesticity. That's essentially mm -hmm. what is being said there. Like that, you know, we're going to live in Albany with mother. Right. Yeah. Um, and, these... and Walter doesn't offer that at all. Right. Yeah. Well, these, so first of all, the dialogue in this movie would make Aaron Sorkin jealous. Um, it's so, it's so crisp. It's so like delivered so quickly. And yeah, like I even watched it. I, I was watching it again this morning with the closed captioning on because I'm just like, I, I need to, I can't catch everything that they're saying. And even with the closed captioning and you still miss so much. Um, it's just, it's just so quick witted. And I love that. But, um, the thing about, um, particularly Carrie Grant's Walter and Roz's Hildy, um, they are two people who absolutely love each other, who, they don't bring out the worst in each other, but they're constantly getting at each other. Like they know, they know where the buttons are and they know how to push them and for how long. And with, with this Bruce Baldwin, Ralph Bellamy, it's not that he provides her with this like challenge that she really needs, even if she doesn't want to accept that she needs it, mm -hmm. but he does, he provides this, he offers stability. He offers for her to get out of this, 
you know, this rat race of of 1940s uh, journalism and the chaos that can come in that. And and we see all of this unfolding over the course of a night where a story is breaking and it's becoming increasingly chaotic and dangerous. And um, he's offering her a way out of that. And she thinks she wants to take that until she realizes that this is really where I belong. Yeah. So, so much of this film, it's about her, not just falling back in love with Walter. It's not just about her and Walter, but it's about what, what Walter represents. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and he constantly tells her, in fact, there's a line where he says, you know, you can't do this to me. You're a newspaper man. And he says, well, and she says, well, I want to go somewhere where I can be a woman. And so there is this conflict that is going on, particularly with Hildy, that she wants, you know, she thinks she wants the trappings of domesticity that are being offered by someone like Bruce. And what becomes clearer as the film goes on is that she really doesn't. She yeah. thrives on the she thrives on the excitement of being a newspaper man, being a being um, a reporter, being involved in all of this. And and the film also doesn't shy away from showing the darkness within that as well. Um, and the fact that people manipulate each other, people treat each other badly. It's all about getting the story and everything. Um, and but that what Walter offers her really is excitement and respect and equality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part and of it. She's, she's not going to really get that. good at it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she she is she is as much in love with being a newspaper woman as she is with Walter himself. Yeah. And what he offers her is something that's very unusual, particularly in the 1940s, which is you get to be that you get to be the thing that you are, that you want to be. You don't have to play the game of being the wife sitting at home or the mother or anything like that. Um, and. And I, I I think that it's interesting because uh, numerous people point this out about the film is is the opening question of why does she go see him mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film? Why if she really wants out, right? They're divorced. Uh, they do not, you know, need to see each other again. Why does she go to the office to tell him that she is getting married? And ultimately, the the question is answered because she wants him to stop her. She knows what sort of a man he is. Um, she knows how he's going to react to this and, and he, and she wants him to say, no, you you don't want to do that. Um, and of course it it happens in very humorous and ridiculous and increasingly ridiculous ways. Um, but it shows very, very clearly, I think that part of, part of the attraction of screwball comedy is this ability for women to be on an equal footing with a man and to actually want that as a part of their life. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting about his girl Friday too, though, is that this is a very funny movie and their relationship is really funny. It's, it's smart and it's interesting. Uh, It's all set over this really serious um, story of what's happening with this guy who's about to get executed um, unjustly. And, um, and so it like kind of introduces some some like corruption and mm-hmm. um and all that too. It's it's just such an interesting um um not paradox, but just kind of what's what's happening. It's like this really funny story over the top of this very serious one. 
The stakes are very high. This this yeah. is probably a, a screwball comedy where the stakes are the highest in terms yeah. of what is actually happening on screen. Um, and and that's and yeah, I agree that that's very important. I think that also, you know, we, we have to not have talked a lot in, in about it happened one night about the leads. The secondary characters are really important in screwball comedy as well. First of all, you've got a lot of very good actors, very funny actors, but you've got um this like you're saying there's this entire story that's happening around them that is part of i think also part of of hildy's story is that this is something that she can actually have an effect on right she she goes and talks to earl williams and she realizes you know you didn't mean to kill this man um you should not be held responsible for this and williams is being used as kind of a pawn by the the mayor and by the sheriff in to, as as like a political a political pawn in order to get votes on election day, so they're playing with his life in a way that is obviously horrifying and vicious. And she is actually someone who can say like, "I I can actually do something about this." Yeah. Um, no, it is it is political, and it'd be interesting to see. Not that I'm advocating for remaking it, but it'd be interesting to see how they would how they would frame this story if they made it now. Um, because it's 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 also a racial issue the reason that they're using this guy is because he killed a black police officer mm-hmm. and they're they're the mayor and the sheriff are counting on the black population to turn up and vote for them for being tough on this guy who killed one of their own and um so i just i don't know that's something i was thinking about was like it'd be interesting to see how it would be framed now and i don't think that it would um be used in a in a ultimately a comedic type of movie like this one mm-hmm. is. Yeah, I think that that's that's a good point. And it's one of those um, that's one of those points that you could almost miss mm-hmm. uh, uh, during the film, because it's only referenced a couple of times that like the the police officer was black. And 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 I think that one of the other things is that it, it does show the crassness of the mayor and the sheriff who are using this as a political kind of motive. Right. Because no basically at least in the way that the crime is described it was really no one's fault this this police officer comes to try to calm this guy down who is distraught um over having lost his job and everything and a gun goes off and it kills this this cop um and this is then being used as this wedge issue in order to get the black vote right so everybody is being manipulated basically by these white politicians so there there is an in in much the same way as it happened one night there is this identification with you know the powers that be versus the rest of humanity right mm-hmm. the people who are downtrodden the cop who has been killed for no good reason the 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 little guy who has lost his job and made a mistake and didn't mean to do anything um, the the girl who tries to kill herself at one point yeah. in order to protect him. Um, all of those things is being mocked by these reporters and everything. So all of the the reality that is lingering in the background of his girl Friday. Right. And ultimately, that's what brings Walter and Hildy back together mm-hmm. and gets her to just because the thing is, like, you know that even though they got divorced, they never stopped loving each other. They just <laughs> Got to a point where they're like, yeah, we, I, I can't live with this, you know, and, and seeing, and the two of them getting to, to work together to right a wrong and to, to stop an injustice from happening. That's what 
gives her that like yeah that i guess the willingness to to come back to something that she knows isn't necessarily good for her but it's certainly what she wants (laughs) well and again it it comes back to that having fun together yeah they it's exciting it's Mm -hmm. she gets to do something that's really exciting and energetic it's bizarre right like you know, Bruce constantly being arrested for all kinds of things. Um, <laughs> Walter, like, manipulating all of these people just to kind of keep Hildy there, basically. And right. and, to, and to get Hildy to understand, base, essentially, this is the world that you want to live in. Like, this is what you want to do. You are a newspaper man, right? Um, and that that's his goal the entire time. There's, there's a wonderful line nearing the end where... For I think it's one of the few quiet moments in the entire film where Hildy is just like breaking down and is like has like burst into tears and Walter's just like oh I'm I didn't mean to make you cry like I'm really sorry <laughs> and and she says well I thought you didn't love me and he says well what are you thinking with like it's it's this is some he's just like well what's wrong of course I love you like what what then is going on here. Um, and it's this wonderful moment in this film that actually isn't that romantic, as it were. Um, there's not a lot of, there's not a clinch at the end. There's not like this sense, this sense of like, um, you know, they're they're going to have a romantic evening together or anything like that. It's, it's he's just like, well, of course I love you. Like I thought that was a given, you know. And it's, but it's wonderful at the same time, because that's really what she was looking for. She was looking for proof in some way that he still loved her. And the entire time he's basically been, been proving that it's just like, yeah, I've spent all of this time basically trying to keep you here. Yeah. Yeah. I love this movie. It's, it's so great. It's a fantastic film. And the, the, like you said, the dialogue is the dialogue is remarkable and I've seen this film. Um, I can't tell you how many times. And I also, the, the last time I watched it, I watched it with the subtitles on. And even then I was like, Oh, I have missed lines. Apparently. Oh yeah. There's a hilarious joke where um, I can't even remember how it goes now, but where, where Cary Grant says something about Bruce and refers to him as looking like Ralph Bellamy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because it is Ralph Bellamy. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like that fellow in the movies, Ralph Bellamy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what? Props to Ralph Bellamy for being the total foil in mm-hmm. this film and, and doing a great job at it. And I also love that it gave us the, the gif, the get out gif. <laughs> yes. And one, uh, although I have to say one of my favorite lines, uh, at least from Cary Grant, is, excuse me, madam, are you referring to me? <laughs> um the the offended dignity in that line and you're just like you have just been manipulating everybody you're lying through your teeth <laughs> constantly and he's so offended just like how dare you yep yep i love it so oh man i mean we we've talked a lot about how much we love Cary grant but this movie i feel like is the and he's great in so many, but this is like the epitome of just like why we love Cary Grant so much. And it, it uses his charm really well because it he's really so does, charming. Yeah. He's so good looking. And at the same time, you're just like, yes, this would absolutely be the man who would just fuck with your entire life <laughs> all the time <laughs> and do absolutely everything he can to like destroy the plans that you have made. Yep. 
Yep. And, and you, you get still under your love skin him. and you love him anyway. Yeah, and you still love him at the end of it. You're just like, I love you, you son of a bitch. Like and probably even a little bit more. <laughs> yep. Uh so for the final film, um, this is probably the screwiest of the, the oh, three yeah. films that we that we wanted to talk about. Um I I personally adore this one. I love Preston Sturgis. Uh, so we want to talk a little bit about The Lady Eve, which is a 1941 film. So this is one year after um, uh, after His Girl Friday is released. And this this definitely deals more with, I guess, the upper classes, even though there is an issue of class and, and of class conflict going on. Um, and it it reverses the roles in a way that probably you don't see as don't see as much as screwball comedy, other than something like bringing up baby. Um, and basically reverses the roles where you've got the man who's the complete dupe, the complete innocent, uh, and, and the woman who's just in control of everything. And my, my good friend Nanina has said, is there anyone sexier than Barbara Stanwyck in The Lady Eve? And it's difficult to imagine. <laughs> um, so this is a film directed by press, directed and written by Preston Sturgis and starring Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda. And Barbara Sandwick is Jean Harrington, a con artist and card sharp who um, encounters Henry Fonda, uh, Charles Pike, a.k.a. Hopsy, um, who is a, an heir to a brewer fortune. <laughs> Hence the nickname Hopsy. <laughs> Hence the nickname Hopsy, who has been up the Amazon for a year uh, has he? i wasn't clear on where he'd been <laughs> been up the amazon and <laughs> uh and so basically has not been in society and has not been in the world for a year and meets her he, he's she's one of the first people he meets on um his his voyage home and they wind up falling in love uh even though her initial intention is to just basically fleece him and get a whole bunch of money out of him at the beginning and then screwy things begin happening now karen i think was this the first time you had watched the lady Eve? it was yes, so what was. are your what were your feelings or and impressions about this uh i spent the whole movie going him really come on <laughs> <laughs> this this does occupy one of my favorite subgenres of uh Barbara Sandwick's career, which which is why is she in love with that idiot? <laughs> yep, um, yep, exactly. Well, he's kind of cute. She, you know, he's kind of cute, but he's dull. He <laughs> seriously can only talk about where he's been for the last year. It's like, dude, I know you've told me eight times in this conversation. <laughs> but I don't know why Barbara Stanwyck necessarily fell into these roles, but there's there are a number of films where she is like she just decides just like you know what he's an idiot, but I but love he's him. My idiot. But I love him, and I'm gonna get him. Like yeah. and and that's just it. Like she does it in Ball of Fire. She does it here. She does it in Christmas in Connecticut. Just like he's dingbat. Like I don't know why I love him, but he's kind of cute. <laughs> I feel like that's why she loves him. I think I think there's something, especially in this. I think there's something about Jean that kind of likes the fact that she can just be smarter than him all the time, and also sexier. Well, and I think that some of it is that he's innocent, like yeah. he and and she's charmed by that. She's charmed by the fact that and she's also charmed by the fact that he um, thinks so highly of her. Yeah. Yeah. He's from very different from the men that she is usually that she is surrounded with with her father. And yeah. Yeah. And it calls back in some ways to um, to to it happened one night where you have this woman who is surrounded by the same type of man. 
right? Mm-hmm. These these men that are kind that are hard boiled, you know, in the case of the Lady Eve, that are hard boiled, that kind of expect her to be to be sexy, to right. to fleece them, to be lying. And and the thing with with Charles is that he's not. He's completely ingenuous. He's completely innocent. He is like he's stupidly innocent. Stupidly innocent. Um, like hilariously yeah, she, stupidly innocent. And she obviously <laughs> finds that charming. And and like so in within the first 10 minutes, he, she has him in her room, putting <laughs> her shoes on her, right? <laughs> and this poor guy, he's been up the Amazon for a year. <laughs> he does not know how to cope with this. He has absolutely no idea. She's just like, oh boy, I can like twist you up so badly. <laughs> he and also, she's enjoying it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because he's been up the Amazon for a year studying snakes, if if that wasn't clear to anybody. But um, he also is still like really protected by his family. His father has mm-hmm. a, a private security guard for him to keep him like because someone tried to slip him a Mickey once, you know, and and so he's he's been on this trip. He's been out of society, but he's also still super protected. Um and not he's he's not at all like really capable of being in the real world he's the dizzy dame he is he is very much (laughs) is yep and he plays it so well henry fonda is really fun watching him be just so dumb and like seriously dude just like yes they are the same person Well, and I, I like, so, so as the film goes on, right. And they, they break up, they're going to get married. And then he, he finds After out they met for like a week. They're going to yeah. get married. And then he finds out that she's actually, you know, this con artist, that her father's a con artist, that everybody she knows is a con artist. <laughs> and, and he, he rejects her pretty cruelly too. Yeah. Um, and, and she's just like, breaks her heart. Yeah. And, and her reaction is just like, I'm going to fuck this guy's life up. Like nope. I'm gonna, I, she has a great line. I need him. Like the ax needs the Turkey. <laughs> um, and which and- I think that right there sums up this movie so well. And it's mm-hmm. it, like that contextualizes why, like her, why she goes after this guy. Yeah. She, she's just like, he, well, he hurt, but like you said he hurts her in a way that she's probably never been hurt before because partially because he's so ingenuous, because he's so innocent and, and he's so mad at being manipulated or what he thinks yeah. is being manipulated. And she's like, oh, this was actually someone that I loved. Like this was someone that I wanted to think better of me and I thought did. And then it turns out that he's just like that. He, he is just going to reject me for being the person that I am. Um, but I, I like the fact that when she shows up as the Lady Eve, um, <laughs> who's supposedly not Jean, and the entire time, uh, what's his name, Murgatroyd, Ambrose Murgatroyd, <laughs> uh, played so brilliantly by William Demarest, um, is like constantly trying to tell Charles, this is the same woman, like this is the same. And he's just like, no, because she's not that stupid. Because obviously she would be like, oh, I would dye my hair. Or I would change my voice or all of these things. So this girl looks too much like the other girl to be the girl. <laughs> and it's a, it's marvelous because it really does speak to both the like his innocence and, and then also just like, well, 
it kind of makes sense <laughs> in in the sense of like yeah if she wanted to pretend she was someone else she would disguise herself more so the fact that she doesn't disguise herself means she's not the same person <laughs> it's a very interesting logic that he has and i love that she like just plays into that you know yeah <laughs> Well, and she she gets him too. Like she knows mm-hmm. she's like, no, I'm not going to dye my hair blonde or like change myself. I'm the same person. I'm just going to not be the same person. Yep. Um. And and it it works. Like, and it's a very it's actually a very clever little ruse within the film. Uh. One of the things I I did want to talk about is the fact that this entire film is about sex. Yes, it is. Um. And so. Again, Karen, I have seen this film many, many times, so I have my own opinions about it. The first 20 minutes or so is basically Barbara Stanwyck, like, torturing Henry Fonda (laughs) Um, to the degree that, like, he doesn't know up from down. What's, like, what was your reaction to this? Oh, it's hilarious watching that and watching this guy who if you weren't sure, has been up in the Amazon for the last year. So he hasn't seen a woman. And um, sorry, I'm really stuck on that. <laughs> it's so funny. But um, but that's the thing. And so it's like, uh, so she knows this and she's, she's kind of using her very blatant sexuality and and her sexiness mm-hmm. to to kind of torture him and it it works and that's part of why he's just so smitten by her after i mean she's been scoping him out in the opening scene she was scoping him out and watching him just like not pay any attention to any of these other women despite the fact that he hasn't been around women for a year and so she knows she knows how to attract him. And then she, once she has his attention, she knows how to keep it. And then what I think is really interesting is that part of his, part of his purity, part of the, the innocence that we see in him is this, this breakup scene, which starts with her, like, um, by the way, I should probably tell you about when I was a teenager and I ran off, you know, like, mm-hmm. and so she starts listing all of her previous relationships and he's so upset because clearly because she's not a virgin mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and this really bothers him. And um, yeah, I, I just, I yeah. thought that was an interesting uh, detail. Yeah. This, this film really, deals actually deals as directly as it can i think Mm -hmm. with sex in um in a way that i i almost go like how the hell did did preston surges get away with it if you've not seen any other preston surges films i really recommend seeing them because almost all of his films have this element where just where it's like he just walks as close to the line as he can possibly get and just dares the censors to do something about it yeah. Um, because like, and and other, uh, he has other films that like deal with pregnancy out of wedlock that deal with um, sex within marriage. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but but this one just like the 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 scenes that especially the op- some of the opening scenes between the two of them. So when she raises her dress about as far as it can possibly go without actually flashing him um, when he's putting on her, uh, her shoes, right? The scene where she just like describes her ideal man while like running her fingers <laughs> through his hair. <laughs> and it is just this moment of like, Henry Fonda is going to have a fit. Like he's just going to pass out or something. 
there's there's a moment where she says, you know, I think that we should go to bed. And yeah. the fact that Sturgis got away with that during the code, and obviously we do not see them get into bed together, but it's like I this is all this is about nothing but sex. And um, and I think that he gets away with that by making it into this kind of screwy joke. Right. So mm-hmm. all of the jokes about snakes, the jokes about being up the Amazon for a year, um, <laughs> the the fact that, yeah, we we know that that Eve slash Jean is not a virgin uh, and that, you know, pro- Charles probably is um, all of those things. It challenges it's uh, particularly the Barbara Stanwyck character challenges the notion of what a good woman is. And uh, and what is appropriate and does so in a really funny and screwy and um, uh, ultimately positive way, because the the final shot is her like like them basically running off to her cabin and him finally saying just like, oh, I'm I'm married. And she's like, well, so am I. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's okay that they have sex, which they do because they're married now. (laughs) You're right, um, to each other. <laughs> yes, to each other. <laughs> and but it's it's very deft, and it's uh, I think it is one of the ways you know screwball comedy is like constantly challenging these gender roles, constantly challenging sexual roles. And I think that the Lady Eve, in a lot of ways, is a combination of that. That it's like we're going to push it as far as we possibly can, and never actually say these two are sleeping together, these two are going to bed together. Never say the word, as it were. But get as close as we possibly can to saying it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's a fantastic film. Um, any other thoughts about that? Um, Anyone you I'm trying to, to think about? if there was anything else I wanted to mention. <laughs> um, no, I think I think that says it all. I mean, it doesn't. There's lots more to say, but I think for this conversation, that's good. I, I do have to say that the Hayes office uh, supposedly rejected the script initially because of, quote, the definite suggestion of a sex affair between your two leads that lacked compensating moral values. <laughs> and a revised script was submitted and approved. I want to know what the original script was, first of all. Yeah. And I want to know if the compensating moral values were, oh, at the end when they do definitely have sex, they're totally married. <laughs> Yeah, they have to be. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, but I'm married, darling. Just like, are you? Are you? <laughs> <laughs> There's some questions there. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this was a lot of fun, and I'm so glad that I finally saw it. It's been, it's, I have so many, but it's been one of those films that's been on my list forever, and I just, this was finally a good time to 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 finally check that box. And and all of the films that we're talking about are actually, except for maybe it happened one night. Um, is it happened one night still on Criterion Channel? Yeah, they all are on Criterion. Um, I think just until the end of the month, though. Yeah, so this is definitely the time to go watch these films. There are a whole bunch of screwball comedies, actually, that are on the Criterion Channel right now that are definitely worth seeing. But um, they're on the Criterion Channel until the end of the month. And they these films also tend to be, be available off and on across platforms. Yeah. Um, they're, they're pretty famous. And actually, I believe that uh, His Girl Friday is in the public domain because they never renewed the copyright for it. So you can get, you can watch that film just about anywhere. 
Um, so definitely watch these if you haven't seen them and then check out some of the other ones that are also available. I really recommend Preston Sturgis films. Like I was going to say, there's several Preston Sturgis films on Criterion right now. Yeah. Palm Beach Story. I know is Sullivan's on there. Travels. Sullivan's Travels, which is another definitely a screwball comedy. So is the Palm Beach Story. Um, Hail the Conquering Hero, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which which deals with sex and pregnancy out of marriage uh which again i'm still there there every time i watch a preston surges film like i don't know how he got away with this like i the only thing that i can imagine is that the scripts like with the lady eve the scripts that he submitted originally were like so out there that (laughs) this that he turned around just like oh no here's the actual scripts like here yeah which is probably why he did it yeah he was gaming the system a little bit yeah just like oh this is much better that's fine (laughs) it's like and then they had sex uh so yes definitely check all of these out um so i think that that will probably close this out were there other things you want to talk about before we close this episode karen um i think we've i think we've done good all right well those films and many others you can watch on the criterion channel and other places and um i think that that will close this out for this week and as always we want to thank our lovely patrons who include ali brian connor estefania heather james kathleen cariata matt michelle mk monty nanina robert robert steve sharon and tau thank you so much for continuing to support us guys um funnily enough i finally have stickers that (laughs) people who are owed stickers owed buttons anything like that Please just just send us a quick message. Let us know uh, if you have a, a U.S. mailing address. Let us know those, and we will get them out to you. We're really sorry about the delay. Blame the U.S. Postal Service. Yes, um, for sure. So we will get them to you, but it might take four months. <laughs> hopefully, Even not if that we mail long. them today. <laughs> Hope everything has been ironed out now at this point. Um, if you want to join their ranks, our Patreon is Patreon.com/slash/CitizenDame, where you will get stuff. And you will also get bonus episodes and episodes early and some other fun things that we're working on. Um, so definitely, if you're able to support us, that's great. This We we fund the entire podcast um, with our Patreon money, and uh, it goes to keeping the website up and keeping us hosted. Um, our website is, of course, citizendamepod.com, where you can read reviews and editorials. And Karen, I know, has a bunch of reviews up there from Sundance, and we'll hopefully have a few more things coming up really soon. Um, and you can, of course, go to our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizendamepod, or contribute to our Ko-Fi. That's co-fi.com slash citizendame. And we also do have a donate button directly linked to our PayPal on our website if you just want to throw us a couple of dollars. Um, we are also on all of the social medias. We are on Twitter for now, <laughs> Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod, and letterboxed at citizendame. And of course, you can get in touch with us individually. Karen, where are you? I am on, I guess, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, all that, at Karen M. Peterson. And I'm on all the socials at LH Business. And so that will close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Do you know the Pikes? What do you care if he does? Oh, do I know them? I positively swill in their ale. Good old Horace. Oh, what a card player. Do you know Charles? Oh, is he the tall backward boy who's always toying with toads and things? Yes, I think I have seen him skulking about. He isn't backward, he's a scientist. Oh, is that what it is? Oh, well, I knew he was peculiar. Well, it's charming to have seen you again. Now, what have we in the fifth? 
birthday, Pearlie. Yeah? Could I visit you sometime? Could you visit me sometime? As your niece. As my niece? My dear girl, there's only one thing. We have to be English. I've I? been English before. I shall be as English as necessary. Why don't you stop talking nonsense? Because I want to see that guy. I've got some unfinished business with him. I need him like the axe needs the turkey. <laughs>